This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Good morning, Equalizer Extra subscribers. It's time for another episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Welcome to episode 47 of the Equalizer podcast. I'm Chelsea Bush. I've got Claire Watkins and John Halloran with me. And we're here to talk about the W League, the grand final, which is what they, uh, what they refer to as their championship, took place in what was uh, very late Friday night or very early Saturday morning for those of us in the States. If you did not stay up to watch it, you missed a banger. Uh, Sydney FC won 4-2 over Perth Glory. And uh, this game was chock full of NWSL faces, including on the scoreboard with Sofia Huertas, Vanna McCaskill, Chloe Lagarzo, Sam Kerr, and Alyssa Motts all getting on the scoreboard. Um, I'm going to open it up to you guys and just let me know, you know what you thought about it. Yeah, I'll let you go first, John. Uh, it was a good game for a, you know, a neutral fan, um, just, just enjoying it. Um, you know, six goals, you can't really complain about that. Um, I think Sydney did a nice job containing Sam Kerr, which I think was, was a big part of the reason they came out on top. And then obviously McCaskill and Huerta both had really strong games, uh, for Sydney and, um, yeah, it was just a good game to watch. Yeah. I thought the, um, the finishing in particular was incredibly impressive, especially just coming from Sydney. Um, each goal individually, uh, were, you know, they just fantastic placement in different ways, um, which is cool. I think we don't always necessarily see in games like this uh, that kind of precise finishing. So I thought that was awesome. Yeah, I thought it was it was really exciting. Um, you know, I, I said last week kind of going into this game, I thought it was going to be a goal fest. And it was. I agree that they, they did a really good job shutting down Kerr. Her, her goal for Perth was actually came from a penalty, which, to be fair, she did earn. Um, and I think even uh, Colaprico, who heard a yellow for that, didn't even argue that that was a penalty. That was uh, it was pretty clear there. Uh, I thought Lotta Kennedy had a really good go- good game for Sydney as, as far as tracking her. She was she was kind of everywhere. And I thought Sydney's midfield uh, just completely controlled things, especially Lagarzo was just zipping around. I, I thought uh, they gave up the ball a little bit too easily sometimes to Perth. Perth was a little bit more aggressive, and it usually worked out for them. But they just a lot of times Sydney just outpassed them and I thought McCaskill, um, she, she had a great game. I think she, she had an uneven rookie season as most rookies do. Um, and, and I think Claire, it was you that tweeted that, uh, you know, this is what McCaskill can do on a good team or something like that. Well, yeah, I think, I think I just said she didn't suddenly stop being good in 2018, you know? Um, right, right. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people were saying it, it, this is an interesting kind of, background you know thing to the match was was 
Savannah McCaskill had a great game. She showed how dangerous she can be in front of goal and how active she can be going forward. And it does just kind of go to show how little support she had with her club team this past year and what kind of talent she still has. It's also just interesting, too, because she's one of the last big names still on that Sky Blue roster. You know, a lot of people have left. Um, and I know, I'm sure I, only speculation because you just have to wonder if maybe that's um, a move that she wants to make, too. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, she had a great match. She had a, she's had a good season for, for Sydney. And at the very least, it's awesome to see a player like that maybe just get some confidence back after what was, you know, obviously a very tough uh, rookie season in the NWSL. You know, yeah, just, and, uh, go ahead, echo, John. I just wanted to echo what Chelsea had said earlier, too, because I, I, I totally agreed that Kennedy had a great game, um, which was good to see because I didn't think that her semi-final uh, performance was particularly great. And I know we all saw her struggle a bit with Orlando this past NWSL season. So I thought she did a great job on Kerr. And then uh, to also mention, um, you know, you were talking about the midfield. I was just really shocked that Perth didn't make any adjustments or at least any effective adjustments um, because they left that, that side that Huerta kept coming down just wide open the entire game. And they never, you know, flattened out their midfield or, 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 you know, reconsidered their shape um, and just allowed that space to exist for all 90 minutes. Yeah, that's and that's something that's interesting too because I thought on the left side that Princess Abini, she had great moments when the ball was at her feet, but I was very unimpressed this match with her off the ball movement and her work rate there. Um, and so a lot of Sydney's attack was coming up their right side with the flank with with Huerta and Ford was there, McCaskill would pop up there. They they kind of interchanged, and and yeah, I agree. They never made any adjustment to to close down that space or to force the play over to a different side. Um, do you think, because I, I noticed that they, they started really slow and Sydney, you know, Huerta scored that, that just amazing opening goal. And then once Perth got that penalty and even it out, they really kind of came back into it. And that's kind of what we saw in their semifinal. Do you mm-hmm. think they just were a little bit overconfident in their ability to come back? Because I mean, after all, they have Sam Kerr. I think it's a good question. I, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, it, it was, it was so... And again, not to take anything away from Kennedy's performance because it was great, but just Kerr could not work her way into the match. You just didn't see it. And then Hill, you know, who was such a big um, part of that semifinal win and opened up a lot of opportunities, not only for herself, but for Kerr, um, had, a, had a pretty quiet game in the final as well. So so speaking of, speaking of Huerta, my question for you two is, uh, we had some Americans in this match who are still, you know, ostensibly on that U.S. Women's National Team bubble. We had Colaprico and Huerta and even maybe further back McCaskill. Um, do you think that the fact that they all three of them have had such strong Australian seasons would make a difference when it goes into goes into this year? Or do you think that that window has closed? I guess Colaprico is going to be at She Believes, so she's the one. Yeah, it's still, yeah, it's still open for Colaprico. Huerta... Mm, I mean, I was going to ask you two what you thought about her defensively. Because it was funny because right before she scored her goal, they'd been down on the other end. And I thought, wow, because the ball wasn't on her side. I thought she's doing a really good job of marking. I don't remember the player. It was probably Hill. Um, 
and not just, you know, I think a lot of, of new defenders are drawn into ball watching in that situation. But she was very aware of where that person was and was waiting for that cross to come in. Um, but, I, you know, all the talk from this game, or a lot of it has been her her offensive efforts, which we know Sophia Huerta could do. We know she can create. We know she can assist. We know she can score. I think the question for her has always been her defensive abilities, and I'm not sure. Um, I don't know if I watched enough of her at right back the season to get a good answer to where she improved on, on that end. I thought she was fine this game, but I think that's the question for her when it comes to the national team. We know she can get forward. It's what, what she can do pushing back. And I, I think the flip side to, to that question is also that I don't think Jill Ellis knows what she wants from her outside backs, mm. unfortunately, right. which makes it really hard to say exactly what Huerta needs to do to get into it. But yeah, I don't know that, that, Ellis is probably paying enough attention. I think she's, I think she's closed the window on Huerta in, in her head. Yeah, I, yeah well, I, I was going to say, what do you think, John? No, 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 you I go ahead. Gonna, I was just going to say that I, I think you're right when you say that Ellis doesn't really know what she wants from her outside backs, or at least she hasn't found it, um, you know, outside of O'Hara and Dunn, because it's just been um, just a constant rotation back there, which, um, you know, we're getting to that point where you don't want to be doing that game in and game out. And they still are at this point, you know, I mean, you saw Emily Fox starting that game against France, um, after some, some pretty average performances in those, uh, November games in Europe. Um, and then she gets dropped out of the game for, for the Spain match. And we're right back to, I don't know who's going to be there. And Matthias gets called into camp, but isn't on the roster. And, um, you know, I think it's, we've, we've talked about this before. I think it's O'Hara and Dunn and then Sonnet and Short and it is what it is. Um, but the one thing I will say about where to, she looked more comfortable to me, um, having had, you know, 12 games in that position, um, than she did when she played for the U S like her positioning for the U S and the times that she did get into matches at that outside back position, you know, it looked like she didn't know what she was doing, and that's not a, a dig on her. She hadn't played there, um, I don't think, ever on the club level heading into those matches. So um, I think there has been some adjustment. She's obviously an incredibly versatile player. You know, she's she's excelled in the league as a 9, as an 11, as a 7, as a 10. Um, so I think she's picked it up here, and we don't know how that might translate to the NWSL, but it doesn't appear that Clarkston's going to play her there anyway. Yeah, yeah, I, and I think I was just going to say ahead, that I, I agree with with John that I think that obviously she looks now like someone who has at the very least played a full, you know, a season at the position and has continued to improve. I don't know if it continue if it still looks like a natural fit, but um, you know, you just kind of have to think that she's still just kind of doing what was asked of her, which she was told to get better at the outside back uh, position and get consistent playing time there and. I don't know. I just think it's interesting and it'll be interesting to see kind of if those efforts, you know, see any, uh, any action on the U S side. Yeah. And I, I think John kind of mentioned something up there at the end that maybe think part of the issue too, is she's going to come back for the dash and not play right back. Right. She, she's not playing there for them. So I think if she cannot get that trade to happen and go somewhere, which I mean, frankly, I think the only place she could probably play right back would be sky blue or Washington. Um, it's not going to look good. It's not a great, you know, how could she continue to, continue to improve? I, I feel for her. I really do. I, 
honestly, I wish that Ellis would just accept the fact that she's a winger and look at her as a winger because I think that come next cycle, you're going to have a lot of, of spots open up and she should be looked at for that. I just give up on the right back thing. This is my opinion. Yeah, maybe the U.S. should just give up on the concept of right backs entirely. Just don't have don't one. Let her hear, don't, <laughs> don't let her hear you. Don't give her any ideas on that front. I mean, it's... And I, I agree with, with John. I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit more next segment. But it, it's just, once you you get away from Dunn and O'Hara, it's short can hardly get any playing time or, frankly, stay healthy right now. Um, I, I think both Sauna and Fox have been average at best and have also had some pretty bad moments. So it's it's rough. But anyway, that like I said, that is probably a topic for the next session. We'll talk about the U.S. roster when we come back. Welcome back to episode 47 of the Equalizer podcast. Chelsea, Claire, and John back with you. Um, before we get to the U.S. roster, there actually has been some offseason news, and I know that's kind of crazy. Um, we've had some signings. Uh, we mentioned Chloe Lagarzo in our previous session um, as she played a very important role in Sydney FC's win. Um, she and Amy Harrison, who was also on that winning team, although she didn't play as much, uh, signed with Washington Spirit. And then... <laughs> And, and what we'll call, uh, I guess, unofficially official news, Steph LeBay is uh, joining North Carolina. And Dagny, and I'm going to screw this up, Brynner's daughter, is going back to Portland. Um, so all great signings, in my opinion, all very important players. Um, unfortunately, three of those four, Dagny being alone one, are also going to miss time for the World Cup this summer. So it's kind of a... Little asterisk there on the signings, um, but I think I think they're they're great for all of them. I, I have some questions about the Bay trade, but or signing, but we'll get to those in a minute. Um, Lagarzo, I think is is fantastic, and I think Harrison is a good defensive addition to the Washington Spirit, who desperately need defenders. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think it's fantastic that Lagarzo is going to be in the league. Um, she's been a player that I think a lot of people have been really hoping to get her stateside. Um, I still am not sure she fits a positional need for Washington. They have a whole lot of midfielders right now um, and not a lot of defenders. But um, I think when you have a talent like that who wants to come in, I think you have to you have to grab it. So I think it's a good move, yeah. but also I have no idea how they're going to set up this year. I think that's fair, but I think she's an upgrade because you have to look at the on paper, I think that they have some some great midfielders, but they like Sullivan like did not translate last year. Mm-hmm. So Lavelle, Lagarzo, Sullivan, maybe that's that's an interesting midfield. Yeah, absolutely. John, did we lose you? Nope, nothing to add oh. on that. <laughs> okay. Um, the one thing I want about add about Steph LeBay is I just it just seems like a weird move. To me, she's obviously a very good keeper and she has to play somewhere, but North Carolina is going to have to go out and replace her while she's gone for the World Cup. And from her end, this is, is far from, you know, a guaranteed starting spot. And I'm just thinking, 
back to obviously there was some other things going on, but a, a similar situation in Washington where, you know, she may end up on the bench. And I'm like, is it really is the idea of at least training with North Carolina better than guaranteeing playing time, you know, somewhere in, in say Sweden or Norway? I think that's a really interesting thing. It's an it's an interesting kind of road to walk down because I think the the first thought that comes to my mind when I see a move like this is, oh, she wants to be closer to home for World Cup prep, which makes sense. Um, but also that line of thinking at least is is probably more U.S. biased. Um, the U.S. obviously has, has more, um, not mandates, but they prefer to have their players playing in the NWSL when they get ready for major tournaments than Canada does. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I do. I wonder how this relates to her goals outside of the league. And also I wonder kind of what conversations she's had with Paul Riley about what um, expectations she's going to have for playing time. Uh, and I, I also like the idea that, you know, um, being in a competitive environment in your club team isn't necessarily bad. Maybe she thinks it'll push her to be better. So I, I agree. I think it's an interesting move. I think everything you said was right, Chelsea, but you know, maybe she just sees that as a challenge. Yeah. You know, that's a fair point. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> All right, and in other news, now that I've gotten that, that cough out of my system, my apologies, um, U.S. roster for She Believes came out. Um, big changes from the last roster are that Morgan Bryan is out. Um, Lindsay Horan is out due to an injury to her, her quad. And then Emily Fox is, is semi-out. She's not on the roster, but she is one of four, along with Merritt Mathias, Allie Long, and Jen Campbell, who will be training in camp with with uh, with the players on the squad, so I think to me the big ones that stand out in this are um, obviously Morgan Bryan being dropped in and Ali Long. Ali Long was not on the Europe trip, so it's been a while since we've seen her for the U.S. and I wouldn't count her out completely at this point. But I think it's interesting that Ellis is continuing to give looks to more of the bubble players like Andy Sullivan, McCall Saboni, and Daniel Colaprico and what is, is pretty much a very important tournament as far as those bubble players to kind of really state their, their chances against very, very quality opponent in a tournament environment uh, before the World Cup. Morgan Bryan, you know, I've, I've been pretty open that I didn't think she was probably good enough for the U.S. for a while, and I think she just did not do herself any favors in Europe. And, and the fact that she's not even training with them, you know, again, they're giving other people looks, and it's, it's ironic, I think, that... The U.S. is so deep in that spot where it used to be such a problem for them. And that's kind of the reason Morgan Bryan became a holding mid for the U.S. to begin with was because they just didn't really have anyone else to do that at the time. Um, but it, it's not good for her. It's not good news for her that she's been dropped completely in favor of letting some other players state their chances. Um, and it's the same for Allie Long. She's at least that she's in camp. She's going to get some looks, but she's. Again, not been on the roster for a while. Has even when she was on the roster before that, wasn't getting much playing time. So I, I think that like players like Colaprico and Zerboni are going to want to knock it out of the park this tournament because they have the potential for actual playing time, and and to really maybe move up a couple of spaces. I think uh, Haran being out is a uh, could be an interesting opportunity for Sam Mewis too because. Uh... 
kind of confoundingly Mewis has not been getting very many minutes lately. And uh, I think we all know that she's a quality player. Um, so I think that's, that's one aspect of, of uh, the Haran injury. And I, I don't think anybody would disagree with you, you know, um, other than, you know, a fanatical Morgan Bryan fan that, uh, that she hasn't been the same. She just hasn't. And this is, this isn't, 2019 or 2018 or 2017 this goes all the way back to to 2016 you know she's she's had all sorts of injuries and she has not had long periods where she's been healthy and in form and it's it's caught up and other players you know like Mewis like Haran as you mentioned it used to be an area where there wasn't a lot of depth and now there is um and when you you have other players pushing through and, uh, you know, Brian not being able to, to stay healthy long enough to get into a good good run of form. You know, I, I, the only surprising thing about this is that she's been dropped because she was such a big part of the team in 2015 and because the U.S. has such a habit of keeping players around regardless of their club form um, if they have, you know, kind of achieved that upper echelon status. Okay, so I, I have a couple – some of this doesn't make sense to me, though, and, and I'm not entirely sure if there's an answer to it, but I'm not disagreeing about Brian's form. I agree with everything you guys say, but looking at that roster, I'm a little bit confused because Lindsay Horan is out, but she is an, she's a midfielder that pushes forward for the U.S., and instead of pulling someone in who is more comfortable in that kind of, you know, going forward more of an eight role – they have they brought in Andy Sullivan and Danny Colaprico, both of which theoretically um, are more of those holding six players. Um, so I, on paper, looking at this roster, assuming that the U.S. wants to win these games, I don't fully understand where their attacking midfield depth is going to come from. I also don't. I, I while agreeing about Morgan Bryan's form, I guess I may be question whether someone like Andy Sullivan has fully leapfrogged her. And I don't know if maybe it's just, you know, right place, right time, or, you know, just what different things Jill Ellis wants to try out. But um, that addition over Morgan Bryan was a little bit surprising to me because I don't see any evidence both for club or for country that someone like Andy Sullivan should be considered over Morgan Bryan. Um, and then the other thing too is Morgan Bryan for the Chicago Red Stars uh, for the you know the tail end of of last season was a little bit more comfortable pushing forward. She wasn't that six role because she was playing with Colaprico and uh, Morgan Bryan showed some really interesting uh, you know spurts of, uh, of of good play pushing into the attack. So I uh, I think you're right and I and I do think that there's a real possibility that Bryan doesn't make it to the World Cup, but. It's just the midfield, the midfield that's going to She Believes still looks very imbalanced to me. And I'm not sure how to reckon that in my brain. Well, I think to answer your, your question about to replace Haran, I think Mewis is, is far and above the most likely of these, this group to be the box to box player. I think that's where she's actually at her best. So fulfilling that role of Haran, you know, pushing up kind of just being all over the place in the midfield, I think that's, and maybe she'll actually, you know, see this as an opportunity to give Mewis some more time. I think Sullivan could potentially be that player. I, I don't think she's necessarily firm as a holding midfielder, as you would say, maybe more of a Zerboni or a Colaprico or an Ertz are. Um, 
And actually, I'm glad you, you mentioned what she plays for Chicago because, you know, she came up playing an attacking midfielder. That's where she made her name right. on the youth squads. And So do you think that finding a way to play attacking more often for her club would get her a better look than maybe at a role that's, uh, that's suddenly become very crowded? Yeah, I really do. And I think um, I am looking – this is where I wish – like Morgan Bryan's – I wish that Morgan Bryan had had – a full season with Chicago, either last year or this year, to develop that midfield relationship with Cole Aprico, because that was really starting to click by the end of the 2018 season. They just kind of ran out of time. And I think that that has pigeonholed her more than she needs to be. I do think she could really find a resurgence as an eight. I think she has talent there. Um, and so I think that yeah, I think you're totally right. I think that if if she's really trying to work her way back into the conversation, digging deep into what she can do in that Chicago midfield going forward could be the way to do that. Um, could I add a couple of things? Um, I think that uh, I don't agree with this, but Ellis has talked about Zerboni as an eight and played her in that eight role um, in the U.S. camps. And I think it was in Utah. She actually said that she likes Zerboni more as an eight than a six. Um, again, I don't agree with that, but uh, that just a, a little bit of insight into Ellis's thinking. Um, but I also agree that the Sullivan one was odd to me because not only is is she that six role that you were talking about, Claire, but she was also a late call up into the last camp. Um, so she was kind of an afterthought you know, one camp ago, and now all of a sudden that, you know, she's she's pushed that much higher. Um, and then Cola Prico obviously got called into the last camp uh, with everybody else, but didn't get any playing time. So you just wonder where that, it, it really seems, and this kind of tails into our outside back discussion, that Ellis has not made up her mind with her depth at, in the midfield, uh, at, you know, at, at, just like she hasn't at outside back. Yeah, I completely agree. I think also, I just don't think that there are necessarily, and this should shock nobody, clear roles for everybody in the midfield right now. Um, and I think sometimes you even see that on the on the field when the U.S. is playing. So, um, yeah, we'll see how she believes goes. I think that the midfield is, despite, and weirdly despite the depth, um, I think that it's still really a work in progress which should honestly maybe concern the U.S. a little bit going into uh, the summer. Yeah, and I think we also have to notice, you know, mention that there's a precedent under Ellis to, or multiple precedents, to continually call people into camp and not really give them any playing time. Mm-hmm. She, she's done that. She did that with Huerta. Remember when uh, Gina, Gina Lewandowski kept getting called into camps? Um, this is, you know, the fact that the Colaprico and Sullivan are kind of just hanging out in that weird uh, space is, is not, it's weird, but it's not unusual for Ellis, I think. Yeah. Um, so one question for you guys, because I've, I've gone on record with what I think about this. Do you think anyone other than Alyssa Nair is going to get a game? No, no, I think, I think, and I I think I said this after they (laughs) lost to France, I think they're going to want, they're going to want to win every single game, uh, on home soil going into this, uh, tournament. And I think that it's just going to, yeah, it's all Nair all the way. I think they're going to start really locking it down even more than we've seen so far. Nothing like uh, putting all your eggs in one basket. It is the U.S. way. (laughs) On that note, we will be back and answer your questions in our next session. 
Hey, welcome back to episode 47 of the Equalizer podcast. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, or at least my favorite section, is when we answer your questions. Um, and any apologies if we missed some. So, let's see. Five Straps Forever says, any news on the NWSL schedule is coming out? I'm going to give the same answer that we've been giving for a while. It's soon. I've I've seen a little part of it, so I know that there's at least something in the works. As for when, I, I don't know exactly. Does anyone know? I don't think there's any official date, but it's you're right. I mean, people have been leaking bits of it all over the place. Um, so I don't know what they're you know what they're waiting on everybody to sign off on the final version. But it's I mean it is it is there is a draft. It is I don't want to say done, but it's done. Right, there is a schedule. It does exist. People have seen it. Um, and I don't know when it's going to get released to the public. Okay. Uh, Jennifer Hampton says, I want to know if Ellis will ever reconsider Jalen Hinkle at left back. Uh, my answer to that is probably not. I think the window's closed on her. I, I don't think that it has anything to do with her, her soccer, which is very good. I think it has much to do with the fact that U S soccer does not like controversy. And you can ask a uh, hope solo and Megan Rapino about that. Anything you guys want to add to that? I think if she was going to be really considered, it would have already happened by now. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that window has closed. Yeah, I agree. And I agree that it doesn't have to do with her, her soccer. Um, you know, the times that she's been brought in haven't really coincided with her best moments. Um, and then she has been brought in at other times where it seemed like maybe it was to, to cover their bases. Um, but I don't think she's going to get another look, certainly not uh, with with Alice in charge. Allison G says, what are you looking most looking forward to at the NWSL season? Also, what team do you think raised its stock the most in the offseason? I am looking forward to soccer, frankly. I, I just <laughs> am ready for it to be back. Yeah, just good week in and week out soccer. I'm seriously looking forward to it, honestly, though. Jen Hildreth and Allie Wagner back on the weekly broadcast. I think they they just raised the bar for those broadcasts. Um, what team do you think raised its stock the most? Gosh, I don't know. I'm gonna let you guys answer that because I honestly, there's been so little. I there there has, and that, that's the thing. It's like you know, you could look at North Carolina signing. Does that really change things? No. You could even look at. We've talked about this. Chicago signed or picked up the best player in the draft, but it might cause problems for them. So that doesn't necessarily change the dynamic for them, or at least we have, you know, we're going to have to wait and see, um, you know, maybe, maybe Seattle picking up groom, um, you know, in terms of a player that might make an impact, but it's, it's tough to, to look at any one team right now and say, that's the team that has done the most good. Right. We, I mean, you could point to Washington likely is the team that's made the most changes, um, yeah. Still definitely kind of a TBD on whether or not those have significantly improved the team. Um, but no, I think I said this going into the draft too. Like I think the top half of the table, uh, part of the reason that they are so successful is because they have consistency in their roster and their players aren't going anywhere. So I think that um, there's not a lot of room at the top for significant improvement and then teams lower down uh, we're not really going to know until we see him on the field. Yeah, agreed. It's just been too static to say. Uh, John Corman asks, will the NWSL release the schedule before the end of February? 
Uh, Will, where to play for the Dash this season? Um, first question we, we've already talked about. John, what do you think about Huerta? I, I think she will. Um, I mean, it's it's public knowledge at this point that she's asked to be traded, but it seems like uh, Clarkson values her more than any other team is willing to pay. Um, I also think that uh, assuming she does play there, and I said this last week on the cast too, I think Houston is is my kind of dark horse favorite to get into the playoffs because um, they have a lot of talent. They're going to get the energy from a new coach coming in. And they probably aren't going to lose any of their American players for the World Cup. So I think that that, you know, when you look at players that are as good as Huerta, as Ojai, Campbell, um, Brooks, Hansen, they have enough of those kind of tweeners um, that they could be really good when the national team players are away. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that Houston is a team to watch for sure. Okay. Jim Mashik says a team housing assistance cap is 95,000 this year is apartments and furniture for 14 players. The best sky blue can do in the expensive New Jersey market. Um, there's a lot to unfold here. We we've talked about sky blue just about every week. And I think the phrase, the best sky blue can do is, Ooh, there's a whole lot we could talk about just there. Um, also think you have to consider that not every player on the roster and, and, I am 99% sure that their roster is not full at this point. Not every player needs an apartment with furniture. Some of them already live there. Some of them, like Carly Lloyd, have have houses elsewhere. So it may just be that they only need to house, at this moment in time, 14 players. I don't know much else besides that, you guys. Well, I can tell you that we both live in a market where housing is expensive and... Um... I think $95,000 doesn't really go that far in that type of a market. So uh, it, it's th- there's a real struggle there. And whether that's Chicago or Sky Blue or, um, you know, Seattle, from what I've heard, um, you know, when you're in a market where housing is, is very expensive, that puts an added burden on those teams. I was actually thinking the- about that in the context of the Seattle move to Tacoma, how I wonder if you know, this this isn't why it happened, but you'd have to think that there's some housing cap relief there if they yeah. can move players out of the the city. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but that's that's still pretty. It's not that far, and that area. Speaking of someone whose job keeps trying to get me to move there because <laughs> where my corporate office is, uh, yeah, the cost of living just in that area is is outrageous. So I don't know that that would be a huge, maybe a, a small relief, but not a huge one. Um, but yeah, it brings up a good point and I don't know exactly if there's an answer to it, but that is definitely true that, um, right now the NWSL housing cap does not reflect the markets in which different teams exist. Uh, and I can, it's, it's tough. It's a tough thing to get around. So I don't know. I think that that is obviously one of many issues with sky blue, but, um, definitely one worth the keep, you know, to keep bringing up. So we'll see. Okay, and uh, one last question. It's a two-parter, or at least it took two tweets to get across. Um, Carrie, we're going to say Carrie Peaks. I'm not about to mingle somebody else's last name. Wondering if U.S. players hit their peak later versus other countries, perhaps because of college play and less technical at young age, or do other countries have to use younger players because they just have less players to choose from? We add new players like Zerboni and McDonald, both 30-plus, and Canada adds 15- to 17-year-olds. 
are our U.S. 16 and 17 year olds same quality as other countries like Canada? Uh, Claire, what do you think? Oh boy, um, I I'm the wrong person to ask about this because I think <laughs> um, I'm a youth team contrarian. I uh, I think that uh, there there are ma- there are major issues in the the U.S. development. I think um, the way I see it is. I, I don't fully know how much fretting should go into worrying about um, teenagers, but I uh, I don't know. I think it's something to keep an eye on. I think in general, um, maybe my biggest interest in this is if you look at U.S. soccer's dysfunction over its entire, you know, um, you know, just the entire organization, whether you look at the men's side or the women's side, youth development, all of that. Um, I think it's fair to look at the criticisms maybe that you see for the boys and the men and start training that also to the girls' side. And I think if at any point the U.S. is really going to start losing ground to the rest of the world, I think you have to look at that as a whole and what U.S. soccer could be doing better. So, um in that respect, yeah, I think it's a concern. Um, I also think that the existence of other avenues to develop is important, and that's why I think the NWSL is uh, incredibly important to the U.S. development, too. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I do tend to think our players mature a little bit later because of the way they're developed. When you have a good player at a young age in, in Germany or England or France – they bring them in, they start playing as pros. I mean, you know, Marijan started playing, I think, for Frankfurt when she was 14. They bring them in at a very young age, much like they do at the men's size, and they get that they get that sort of development, whereas the U.S., we play them on the youth teams, we put them through the college system with a few, you know, rare exceptions. And then I don't necessarily think it's a concern for the moment. Um, the U.S. has run as an older team compared to the rest of the world for a while, and it doesn't seem to have hurt them. Terribly, we yes, we always say other teams are catching up, other teams are catching up, but we're still ranked number one. We're still competing. We're still favorites every tournament. So I don't think it's much something to to worry too much about. Um, but I, I think they should take a long term look at it and then think: Is the college system really the best development for every player? No, it's not. And I think you need to do a better job at identifying the players, maybe like a Pew, who that's not going to benefit from that, although. We may be reconsidering that given her recent form, um, but it, it seems to be working right to an extent. I think there's two issues. I think the first is that our youth system is designed with college scholarships in mind, so the push is not you know to get players to go pro; it's to earn a college scholarship. So then, you know, it's already geared towards pushing them towards that system where if they achieve it they're only going to be training, you know, formally three months out of the year. So, of course, you know, in that type of an environment, you know, once they get to college, they're not getting the same type of training that a player in a professional environment would be. But the problem is, is that you can't change that system as it's currently constructed because to get into the youth system, to get that college scholarship, you have to have thousands of dollars of disposable income to put your child into one of these development academies or ECNL teams. And so soccer is an upper class sport in the United States. And so, of course, those kids are going to go to college They're, you know, so it's to try to 
convince them that, you know, that they should go this other route um, into a professional environment. It's just not, it's just not tenable. Um, it's barely tenable on the men's side, um, on the women's side to, to tell somebody that they should skip out on an opportunity to go to Stanford or Duke or, you know, Penn State to go make $18,000 a year is insane. And, and, and those parents are never going to let their kids go that route. And the second thing is, and I wrote a piece about this on the Equalizer a couple of weeks ago about, you know, a potential restructuring of the U.S. subsidies for the NWSL is that you need to keep the league strong and you need to get salaries higher so that those players in their mid-20s don't retire because you are going to have late bloomers like a like a Zerboni who, you know, managed to, to stick around in between leagues, which is pretty rare for somebody not on the national team level, because there are certain positions like holding mid, like center back, um, where players are going to develop a little bit later in their careers. And if those players are retiring, you have no idea what you might be missing out at. And if you're 25, 26 years old and earning $22,000 a year with a degree from UCLA, you're going to start looking around and thinking, should I go a different route? And so if they can increase the salaries in the league, that's going to help keep those players around. And you're going to maybe take advantage of a handful more of those late bloomers, uh, which of course is going to make the national team stronger. Yeah. And I kind of want to circle back to the very last part of her question was when she said, are our U S 16 and 17 year olds, the same quality as other countries like Canada. And I have to say that, that having watched the U 17s on multiple occasions, Generally not. They're generally not. That, but again, the U.S. isn't known for being the most technical of countries. If that's what you're, you're judging by, then, then we're going to come up short at most age groups. But I, I don't think that our youth teams, I, I do think that's where the argument comes in strongest of other uh, countries catching up. I don't think our youth teams are, are as good as other players, other countries' youth teams. But again, it seems to even out in the end. And I think that fixing that, uh, you know, John summed it up pretty well is what the issues are with, with the youth squad there. So uh, I think that's it for the questions. Anything else, Clara, John, you want to mention that we've missed? So what we got? We got She Believes coming up and then uh, NWSL preseason. So we're gearing up. It's the year is happening. we'll have a schedule. <laughs> yeah. We will have a schedule before the first game. Are you sure? I will put money on having a schedule before the first game. Okay. That's as close as I'll get. All right. I'm going to tweet that well, out. Hey. <laughs> Except for a hurricane. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Don't, uh, don't start hurricane gate again. We don't need to go there. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, this has been episode 47 of the Equalizer podcast. I'm Chelsea Bush. With me is Claire Watkins and John Halloran. And we thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. The views and opinions expressed are those of the hosts and do not necessarily represent those of Equalizer Soccer. We thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.